Have you ever thought about volunteering here at Cambridge 105 Radio? I'm Lucy Malazzo, and five years ago, I did just that. I wanted to learn about radio and kind of thought I could help out behind the scenes. Since then, I've read the news, have woken up to a very early alarm for Cambridge breakfast and recorded promos like this one. Right now, Cambridge 105 Radio is looking for new volunteers to join the team. And if you fancy getting involved, visit cambridge105.co.uk slash volunteer. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. And Happy New Year! This is our first show of 2023 and it's a cracker. The theme is female survivors. You'll hear some extraordinary tales of courage today. Our featured guest is Hope Adams talking about her novel Dangerous Women based on the true story of the transportation of female prisoners to Australia in the 19th century. And Rachlin talks about Zdenka Vantlover's autobiography, The Tin Ring, a memoir of love and survival during the Holocaust. And Julietta Harvey will chat about her novel, Fear of Light, inspired by a real-life story of a woman held captive in Italy by her own family. So as you can hear, challenging subjects today, so take that as your trigger warning. But first of all, Hope, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you. We'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. I say Hope. I know I'm going to trip up on this because you're <laughs> Hope Adams for this novel. You're Adele Geras. In well, it's our... interesting you should say that because that is one reason why I really, really like being Hope Adams is the fact that everybody can say it correctly. <laughs> I have been, since 1967 when I married... I have been Adele Geras, not Geras or Giras or Giraffe or all the things my kids used to call me when I was a teacher. Nobody can say Geras. Hope Adams, very straightforward. So Hope Adams is very straightforward, very plain, looks very good on a dust jacket. You know, it just sort of fits in very nicely. And it's at the beginning of the alphabet which oh, is Kenny. very important. Kenny. Yes. So why Hope Adams and not Adele Jarrett well, for this? Well, because in 2016, round about then, I was looking to find a new agent and I didn't want to write and approach new agents under my real name because I knew that they would then go straight to my records and check up on how many copies of how many books I'd sold. And I was quite old even then. I'm much older now, obviously. And I didn't want anybody making any kind of prejudgments about me. So all the letters I wrote just said, you know, I'm a published writer. I'm looking for new representation because it's completely different from what I've been doing up to now. And so I'm writing to you under a pseudonym. And I signed it Hope Adams. And I signed it Hope Adams. Hope, because I was hoping some agent would take me out. (laughs) And Adams, as I say, because it's the beginning of the alphabet and it's a good easy name and no one would worry about it. And then so when I found an agent and subsequently found a publisher as well, the decision had to be made at each stage. Do we send this out as Adele Geras or do we send it out as Hope Adams? And at each stage we decided 
hope Adams would be better. With the publisher, when my agent sent it out to the publisher, she had the exact same thing. We don't want anybody looking up your sales figures and your your track record and all the things that have happened to you in the past. When the publisher found me and found the book and got to meet me, obviously, and knew who I was, they also decided to go out under a new name because then, cunningly, they could present it rather disingenuously as a debut novel. And publishing loves debut novels. So we decided that really what we would do is send it out under the new name, but at no point pretend that I'm not me. So in other words, you know, Hope Adams hasn't got a Twitter account. Dale Gerris has got a Twitter account. And it says in the front of every book or on the blurb or somewhere that I am in fact. And it, it puts my website on as Adele Geras books and all the rest of it. So no one was hiding anything from the beginning, but it just allowed them to make a big fuss of it as a debut novel. Well, we might, we might slip between Hope and Adele. Yeah, it doesn't today. matter, doesn't matter. <laughs> but let's hear, well, Adele's Hope's first choice of music today. Uh, it's music important to you, first of all. Yes, enormously important. I love it. I'm basically a frustrated Barbara Streisand-type character. Judy Garland. Judy Garland is who I really identify <laughs> with. Oh, don't uh, I should have been a star, basically, well, uh, well, on a West End stage. So, yeah, music's very important to me, indeed. You are a star. You are. Thank you. And this one, Janis Joplin, me and Bobby McGee. Why this one? I was standing at the sink in Manchester, peeling some potatoes in... Sophie was born, so it must have been like the early 70s, maybe 72. And this came on the radio. And to say I was blown away is putting it mildly. I had never heard anything so amazing in my entire life. I mean, I've always liked country music and uh, show tunes and pop music and so on. But when I heard this with this extraordinary voice... I thought, blimey, Charlie, this is something different. And I literally stood there with my hands in the potatoes listening to this. And, of course, I've heard many, many, many versions of it since because it's become a kind of standard. But nobody does it like Janice. Busted flat in Ben Rouge Waiting for a train When I was feeling near as faded as my jeans Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained And rode us all the way Into New Orleans I pulled my harpoon Out of my dirty red bandana I was playing soft While Bobby sang the blues Windshield wipers Slapping time I was holding Bobby's hand in mine that was Me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Hope Adams, the pseudonym, as we've heard, of Adele Garras. Adele has written over 100 books for readers of all ages, but is perhaps best known for her work for children, especially the Tutu Tilly Bally series. Her novel Troy was shortlisted for the Whitbread Children's Book Prize and highly commended for the Carnegie Medal. Dangerous Women, written under the pseudonym of Hope Adams, came out last year. The Times called it fascinating, and The Guardian said it was masterfully plotted and immensely satisfying. I enjoyed it very much too, I have to Thank say. Thank you. I bought it as a Christmas present for several people. Uh, but for people who haven't read it, what's it about? Well, 
In 2009, I went to see an exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum called Quilts, because I like patchwork. One of my first children's books was called Apricots at Midnight, which is about a patchwork quilt. So I'm very interested in that. And I went to see it, and on one of the walls was a most beautiful patchwork quilt. So I was admiring that, and I read the little placard at the bottom, which basically said this quilt was made by women prisoners aboard the Raja in 1841. The Raja was transporting 180 women to a penal colony in Van Diemen's Land, which is Tasmania now. And the quilt was made under the guidance of their matron, Keziah Hayter, who was only 23, and who was related to the Hayter brothers. George, I think, was one of them. George painted the coronation portrait of Victoria. And so she was from quite an artistic family. It said Keziah Hayter was only 23, and she had been put in charge of these women to teach them skills that would help them in their new jobs in their new country. And I thought, yeah, that's all very fascinating. <laughs> Full stop. Then it said... By the end of the voyage, Keziah was engaged to the captain and my jaw just dropped open. I thought, oh, my God, this is a novel. This is amazing. So if by the end of the trip she was engaged, they must have, you know, this is a six-week voyage. My mind was just sort of racing. First thing I thought was, this is an amazing novel. Got to write it. Second, I thought, maybe somebody's already written it. You know, how can they not have written it? And between 2009 and 2000 and, I suppose, 19, when it was accepted for publication, I was looking over my shoulder every week. <laughs> I would read the bookseller every week, thinking this is the week there's going to be a book about this quilt. Because it is a most astonishing story. They know an awful lot about this quilt and the women who the women who made it. It was an extraordinarily well-documented voyage. So we know the names of every single prisoner. We know her weight, her height, her eye colour, her hair colour, the crime she was in for. You know, it's really... There's a hell of a lot of data. Keziah wrote a journal. The doctor on board wrote a journal. Everybody knows everything. So where is the space... To put a novel, but I was I was determined to do it. And the quilt itself, I looked it up online. It's beautiful, absolutely, absolutely beautiful. beautiful. What does that tell you? Does that tell you anything about the it, women? Well, it tells me a lot about Keziah because the quilt, if you do look up, look at it up online, it's got a central panel, which is particularly beautiful. It has birds of paradise on it and embroideries and all sorts of things. And we're pretty sure that that central panel was designed and made by Keziah herself. The reason I know so much about the quilt is because an extraordinary and rather spooky thing happened when I came to Cambridge, which was that I was suddenly in touch again with a friend of mine from school called Carolyn Ferguson, whom I hadn't seen for about 40 years, and then suddenly she reappears, living in Cambridge, and she just so happens to be the world's leading authority on this quilt. Her speciality is 19th century textiles. So she has copies 
photographic copies of every single patch on that quilt. And she knows an awful lot about, you know, I mean, they know, for example, that there were only about 20 women who worked on it. Now, how they know this, I have no idea. And Carolyn was just such an amazing research resource, as well as a good friend, that... um, I learnt, you know, an awful lot about it. And the consensus is that Keziah had a kind of overall charge of it. And I think that's because, well, in the novel I say that's because she has artistic ambitions. She wants to, you know, make something like her uncles who were painters, her cousins who were painters and so forth. So, yeah, we do know an awful lot about that quilt. And, of course, it's still hanging in Canberra in the museum. And given that it's very well documented, so you've got a lot of research material Mm. to pull on there, how easy is it to take liberties then? Because you you have a murder, for example, taking a place. Oh, well, I'll tell you about the murder. The murder comes later. First of all, I decided right from the beginning I would not use any of their names because Australia must be packed with their descendants. So I wasn't going to tread on any toes. And if you read the log, you'll see that... The crimes that these poor women committed were ridiculous. Stealing handkerchiefs, stealing food from a stall, trying to pass off false coins. I imagined, you know, and, you know, one's read one's Dickens. You, you sort of know that these women are enthralled to not exactly pimps, but men who are getting them to do stuff that they wouldn't normally do or else extremely poor and stealing in order to feed their children. So, you know, these are not criminals. These are poor women who have fallen on hard times in many cases. And I think in my book I probably make Keziah slightly too modern in her views about this, but I'm quite convinced, and I, I, I mean, one knows, she worked with Elizabeth Fry and Elizabeth Pryor, who did enormous amounts in the early 19th century to improve conditions for women in prisons because they recognised, you know, these Victorian matrons knew that these were poor women and not criminal masterminds or murderers or rapists or, you know, anything violent. That train of thought would have been there. And I think the kind of Christian mercy angle would have been something that I'm I'm pretty sure Keziah would have shared with me. Now, the murder came about in a completely different way. I saw this as a romance, a love story between this woman and this captain. I mean, what could be more romantic? And when I sent the first, I think about 80 pages, to my new agent, I went to see her in London. And she said, yeah, I really like this. This is terrific. You know, you've got to write it. It's it's, it's ace. But, she said, she and she pointed at the victim, she's got to die. I said, what? (laughs) Are you serious? You know, this had just literally never occurred to me. She said, yes, if she dies, then you immediately turn it into something 100% more exciting. You've got a ticking clock. They've got to find out in a certain time before they get to Hobart who's killed this person, why, and so on and so forth. So I thought, right. Very good. So, yeah, classic locked room murder, isn't it? It can only be somebody on board that ship. Absolutely. So I took to that suggestion with great glee (laughs) uh, and thought, yeah, 
that is a brilliant idea for which my agent is entirely responsible. And what about the conditions on board? I mean, you've made it challenging for yourself because it's historical and it's on board a ship. Yes. So there's nautical terminology in there. But what were the conditions like? I can't imagine they would have been terrific, frankly. I went to walk around the Cutty Sark to have a look at a ship. Any old ship would do. I've got slight form on conditions on ships because in 1982, I think, or something like that, I wrote a book for teenagers called Voyage. And Voyage was about refugees from Europe crossing over to America to make a new life. And again, the whole novel in Voyage takes place on board ship. And frankly, okay, it's many years later, but still, conditions in the hold of those ships cannot have been fun. I imagined what it must be like to lie in rows and, you know, have very little room. So it can't have been a bed of roses, right? People would have been being sick from being seasick and women have periods and how would they wash and all the rest of it. You can read up about a lot of this, but mostly you just imagine it. And you don't need to go into too much detail. You know, you only need to kind of say it once and then people have the image in their heads. I think what having 180 women on board a well-run ship, and it was a well-run ship because in the real world, in in real life, only one person died of unnatural causes. There was very little illness. You know, it was a perfectly smooth and lovely voyage. So I think on a well-run ship, the fact of having 180 women, they were divided into kind of little groups, so that groups ate together and cleared up together and this kind of thing. The women would have seen to it. You know, there would be someone in a group of 12 women who'd want the place looking good and would have done something about it. And the sailors too. I just think, you know, if there's good discipline on the ship, everybody kind of mucks in more. So I didn't emphasise the horrors too much except where I needed to. But it can't have been a picnic. Those voyages can't have been a picnic. Well, it's very, very vivid, uh, Adele. Uh, Let's take a a break now, though. Not much of a break. We're, We're still staying with excruciatingly awful circumstances. But let's hear from Anne Rarklin now. The Tin Ring, my memoir of love and survival in the Holocaust by Sedenka Vantlova, details her extraordinary and harrowing time in six concentration camps, including Auschwitz and Belsen. Last year, I spoke to Anne Rarklin and asked her how she came to write the foreword to Zdenka's book. And this interview was recorded before Zdenka's death in November. Because I recorded the book, for Audible. And uh, by recording it, of course, I'm probably the person next to Zenka who knows it best. And I've always done anything that uh, will help Zenka because she's a dear, dear, dear friend. And I would do anything in the world I could to help her. So the foreword was asked by the publisher if if I would write the foreword for it, which I did very willingly because it's a very fascinating story of of how I came to be so such a close friend of Zenka Fantlova. And you say you're a close friend. Reading this book, did you find out lots of things that you didn't know about her? Well, it was because of who she is and what had happened to her that I became a friend of hers. I was at Durham University when a very close friend of mine was alerted to a sculptor in Durham who had just been to Auschwitz and had looked at a pile of suitcases and each suitcase has a name and a number on it. And it moved him to tears. 
and he took a photograph of the suitcases, one in particular. And then he, when he came back to Durham, he decided he would like to perpetuate that suitcase by making a stone image of it. And when my friend Henry, who was the keeper of fine arts at Durham University, heard about it, he went to see the suitcase, the stone one, and decided that it could be the focal point of a new Holocaust memorial in the university. And so he had the suitcase and then he, he said, please add a book and a bag of old clothes and an umbrella, all scattered on the grass of one of the colleges, as though people had left in a hurry. And that suitcase, of course, was Zenka's suitcase. And when it came to having the dedication of the Holocaust Memorial at the university, Zenka was invited. We knew that she was living in London, but sadly she'd had an accident and she was unable to come. And I was very aware of her absence. I felt it keenly. And afterwards, I thought, I'm going to write to her and tell her what happened and, and say how much she was missed. When finally I got her on the phone, I said to her, what did you think of the memorial and your suitcase? And she said, I haven't seen it. I said, what, nobody sent you a photograph? She said, no. So I printed off the pictures of the dedication service and sent it off to Zenka. And there started a very deep friendship. I found myself so in awe of her, such an incredible zest for life. She loved to speak to young people as most Holocaust survivors do. And so she would go to schools and colleges and she's just the most extraordinary lady. And she's a remarkable person. I mean, she survived six concentration camps, including Auschwitz and Belsen. Just incredible to believe. But the reason that she survived was what makes the book so readable and such a romantic story, because she'd fallen in love just prior to the war, before the invasion of the Nazis to Czechoslovakia, as it was then. They were so passionately in love and they hoped that if they were going to be deported, they would go to the same concentration camp, which they did. They went to Regenstadt or Terezin. And although they could hardly see each other, there were moments when they could grab a moment together. And then one night she was in the woman's barracks and she still didn't know how he did it. But her boyfriend, Arno, got in and climbed up to the bunk where she was sleeping and told her the very bad news that he was being transported the next morning. But he said, I have made this ring for you. It is our engagement ring. After the war, I will search for you and we will find each other and then we will live happily ever after. The ring was engraved with the date and his name and it was just a ring from an old tin can, a tin ring. And that tin ring meant everything to Zenka. She wore it round her neck. She risked death for it because she would have been shot if they'd found that she still had this piece of jewellery around her neck. And that tin ring kept her alive. That was the hope the wonderful hope that kept her going, even through Auschwitz and, of course, the horrors of Bergen-Belsen when she had typhus. That tin ring was the real reason that she kept fighting, fighting, although she lost everybody. And, of course, when she was, in fact, liberated by the British and went to Sweden, where she worked in a biscuit factory to begin with, she was searching the names of survivors all the time, and she discovered that she was the only survivor, not only of her family and friends, but of all the Jewish people in her town. She was the sole survivor. 
And have you seen the tin ring, Anne? Yes, I have seen it. She's kept it. Of course, it's photograph is in the book. I, mean, I suppose she'll be buried with it. I should imagine she would be when the time comes. And she's getting on for 101 now. <laughs> this book, this new, new edition of the book is important. It was printed to celebrate her 100th birthday on March the 28th this year. But it also has some extra chapters in it because everybody said, and what happened afterwards? The original Tin Ring ended with her liberation, trying to decide what she wanted to do, where she wanted to go. She ended up as a secretary, in the, I think, in the Czech embassy. But the real story was that she went to Australia and she became a well-known actress. And she married there and she had a daughter and she has two granddaughters. And this year, one little great grandson. You know, it was really a very fulfilling for her to have a family. And there's lots of books about the Holocaust uh, and memoirs. Why should we read this one? What makes this one different? Because it's positive. Zenka, when she signs the book, always says one thing. Every day is a gift. That was her whole philosophy of life. She never gave up. She never lost hope. She describes how when they were absolutely starving in the concentration camps, how they would sit around and pretend they were making Friday night dinner, cooking all the, all the recipes and comparing their recipes. And by talking about it, they weren't hungry anymore. There was always something positive that she managed to bring from her inner soul. She also has a very interesting thought that I think is worth passing on. She says we all of us have a special part in our bodies where we can survive even the worst things that happen. And she said that we don't, we know we have it until we need it. And she always heard a voice calling to her when she thought she was dying, when she thought everything was over. This voice would say to her, no, not yet. And when I went to see her on her hundredth birthday, she was sitting on her bed in her bedroom and I walked in and I said, hello, darling, how are you? And she, with her wonderful sense of drama, looked up at me and said, I'm dying. And I just looked her straight in the face and I said, no, not yet. And she started to laugh and we celebrated her birthday. <laughs> and you've read this book, obviously, as you say, I mean, difficult subject matter I know you say it's uplifting it's full of hope but still quite a lot of trauma in there what effect has that had on you has it changed your outlook on life well Lee this has been a really bad year for me my daughter died eight months ago from cancer in Paris and um, I hadn't seen her for three and a half years and I went over and I had one hour with her before she was moved to a hospice where she suddenly died. So what does this book mean to me? It's a lifeline. It's a lifeline for people who are grieving. There's nothing quite like the loss of your own child at any age. And this book is a lifeline because here you see a Holocaust survivor. She's lost everything. I mean, you would think, why should I try? What, what? I've lost the man I love. I've, lo I've no family. Everyone's gone. How do you start when you haven't a soul in the world? And yet she did. And yet many of them did. And this year when His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales dedicated an exhibition to the Holocaust survivors and commissioned portraits of seven of them 
whose eyes tell it all. And they've all had that horrendous experience and yet they should survive. And so even when you're grieving, there's always something that you can dig down deep and you will come through it. I know because I'm right there right now, but I have been inspired by Zenka. Her friendship has meant very much to me. And if I have in some small way made a difference to her life in her very extreme old age, well, it's a small gift because she's made so much difference to me. And The Tin Ring, My Memoir of Love and Survival in the Holocaust by Zdenka Fantlova is published by McNidder and Grace. We're talking on Bookmark today to Hope Adams, a.k.a. Adele Garras, about her novel, Dangerous Women. Adele, I want to ask you about the structure of uh, the novel because it moves between now and then. You, you time slip and each chapter has a little description of, a, I'm presuming, a real-life panel of the quilt. So the novel yes. itself feels like a, a patchwork. Was that your yes, idea? exactly. And each of those little squares is indeed a real square, which Carolyn and I picked out and then I described. I did have them at the top of every chapter, but then my American editor thought, if we only have them in the then chapters... It kind of marks them out as different. So basically it's before and after the murder is really what the then and now is about. Because the book starts with the murder and then you go in and then you go back to how they got on the boat and what their crimes were and so on and so forth. So it was a way of marking out the bits that were in the past. But yes, it did occur to me that it it would be uh, a very good way of emphasising the patchworkiness of it. Yeah. And... We talked about the conditions on board before. What about for the women themselves? Here they were surrounded by the crew, the male crew. Were they at risk from them? Do we know They about? must have been a bit. I mean, I put a bit of that in. I didn't want to be diverted from my kind of main story, but I reckon they must have been consorting with some of these women. And again, because it's a ship... A lot depends on the captain, and and everyone agrees that Charles Ferguson was just an excellent captain, and Kazar fell in love with him and stayed married to him and so on. So he must have been a good bloke and run a tight ship. So there was probably less of that than on some other ships. But, yeah, sure. And children there too? Yes, I think there were ten. can't remember. We know. We know about all these children, ten or eleven children, who were allowed to go with their mothers. And indeed, the child is very important in the story. And I suppose uncertainty as to what's going to happen to them when they when they get there. Yes. They want to get there because they want to be off this voyage, but they don't know what exactly. Life them. It, when you think about it, because you know they haven't been sitting on Twitter and looking at Instagrams from the other side of the world. They know nothing. They've never even been on water beyond the Serpentine or the Thames. And suddenly they're in the middle of this vast ocean, going somewhere they have no knowledge of at all. It must have been bloody terrifying for most of them. One of them, and I think this again might have been some women thinking, right, I can start again, you know, the John Stonehouse thing. I can have a new life. I don't have to be who I was, a criminal, a poor woman. I can start all over again. That was the impulse in... The ladies' committee, as they were called, Elizabeth Fry, Elizabeth Pryor, the prison people, of giving each woman, as she 
went on the ship, a package with knitting needles, scissors, needles and thread, patches. You know, the, the cotton merchants and the woolen merchants gave cloth for them to learn new skills so that they would have something at the other end that they could actually do and was, would be useful to them. You know, the aim was to sort of improve them, but they must have been absolutely scared stiff, I reckon. This ties in nicely with your second choice of music, which is a hymn that's very important in the novel, Teach Me My God and King. It's by George Herbert, who is one of the greatest poets in the world. And the words of this are just so marvellous. And I'm sure, 100% sure, that Kazai must have known this hymn and must have really, really approved of its sentiment, which is, A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. In other words, every task you do is sanctioned by God, and if you do it well and to your best ability as to his laws, you're just as good as anybody else. And I, I think the message, the message of that hymn is so wonderful. And of course, it has a lovely tune as well and is very, very good to sing along to before you sit down and, and start sewing. <laughs> yeah. Mark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations rather than books. And we're speaking on Bookmark today to Hope Adams, a.k.a. Adele Garras, about her novel, Dangerous Women. Hope, Adele. We've uh, <laughs> we talked about the uh, quilt, and obviously you, you've seen the quilt and studied it in detail. Do the women's personalities come out? In the, I mean, can you see different standards of sewing? Did they prick their fingers? Is there blood? You know, yes. is, is there yes, personality absolutely. in the quilt? I think so. I mean, I haven't been close up enough to see that, but Carolyn assures me that you can certainly tell. Some of the 20 women sitting around are excellent sewers and their stitches are all nice and even. Some are a mess or more of a mess because I would have chosen the best people. There is blood on the quilt. People must have pricked their fingers and probably tried to 
mend it as best they can. But yes, absolutely. The, the, the experts in sewing know the standard of sewing and the kind of person who did it, yes. And what definitely. happened to it on arrival? Well, this is very strange. I, I never go there. <laughs> but it ended up in a trunk in Edinburgh. Somebody found it in a trunk in Edinburgh, not till the 50s, I don't think. I suspect it came back with Keziah, because she came back after she'd married Charles Ferguson, and I think they lived in Scotland. And it was found much later. Uh, Just bundled up, up at bundled home. up. It's a beautiful yeah. piece of work. Yes, absolutely. But yeah. now it's Sunday. Now it's, it's, now it's uh, yeah, being looked after very well in, in Canberra. Yeah. And what about the women? I know you probably can't track all of them, but do you know what happened to them? I have no idea. Some went to factories, some went to shops, some went to farms. You know, they were sort of distributed around where women were needed, basically for the men who were already there. So I don't know. And people, <laughs> they did this with Voyage as well. When I wrote Voyage, the last scene in that book was them coming into the harbour in New York with the Statue of Liberty. And I used to go around to schools and kids would say, what happened to Danny and Rachel? I said, I don't care. I don't care. I just leave them there. This is not my business. And with this again, people are saying, are you going to write a sequel? No, absolutely not. My interest in them stops the minute they get off that ship and out of... It's rather like having a stage set, you know, with a play. Once the curtain's fallen... That's it. That's the end. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer interested in exploring. There must be signs of them, mustn't there, on, on, as you say, Tasmania? Which yeah, was they, like... they absolutely must. All their descendants must be still around. Yeah. And what about the transportation of women? That obviously stopped, the transportation of yes. convicts and prison conditions yes. improved at home. So that yeah. was something that was... It that was sort of ongoing. Yes. yes. They decided, obviously, it was not a good idea to... <laughs> Like a kind of Rwanda scheme. You know, you just shove them off somewhere else for them to deal with. But they actually, I mean, the new colonies needed people. And this was a quick and easy way, I guess, of slightly lessening the crowdedness in, in England and Wales's jails. Yeah. Thank you, Adele. We'll come back to you in just a moment. But let's hear what well, we've been talking about, Tasmania. Let's go to Italy now and hear from Julietta Harvey. Julietta Harvey is an associate of Clare Hall. Her first novel, Familiar Wars, came out in 1987 and was shortlisted for the Whitbread First Novel Prize. Her second novel, One Third of Paradise, published in 2015, was runner-up for the Hellenic Prize. Fear of Light came out at the end of last year and I asked Julietta what it's about. My novel is about um, a young girl in a mountain village in Greece who ended up being locked in a room by her father to start with for not a serious reason, but then it became long, very long. The reason that she was kept at home to start with was that she was going up on the mountain apparently to meet a boyfriend, a lover from another village. Now, in a way, you have to know the history and politics of Greece to understand what happens when someone is from another village because the other village could have a different political 
orientation because there has been a civil war in Greece. After the Second World War, there was a civil war, especially in the countryside and villages. There was a real war between the royalists, the right wing, and the left. So politics comes into it. Family strictness, unreasonable strictness comes into it. And what happens to the life, to the person of this girl is partly what the novel is about, but it is also a study. It is a study of a Greek family in the countryside, a study of a Greek village and Greek history. Others of your novels have explored Greek history. Have you discovered more about your heritage writing these novels? Yes. I was very interested in it. I didn't write in order to discover. I wrote because I liked telling stories. Partly that, partly a kind of a homesickness. Because my first novel, Familiar Wars, uh, has to do with my, my father's life. He was a Greek from what we call Asia Minor, which is Turkey. And as a young boy, came to Greece without a family. He lost all of his family there. So I always had tender feelings for this young boy who came at a loss in Greece and did all kinds of jobs and did very well. So I very much wanted to write about his life. That's how I started realizing I can write novels and I like writing novels. And I, it seems perhaps I'm a bit of a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> and it taps into that Greek tradition of tragic writing? No, I did not have in mind particular genres like tragedy or comedy. I wanted it to be life in all its manifestations. I like to have comedy and tragedy and in loveness and angers and, and so on. So although my field is English literature, I've got a doctorate in, here in Cambridge in English literature, but uh, it has to do with English literature. I did a lot of work on, on 17th century poetry, etc. Then I thought... Perhaps I should write about my country and my family. I started and then never looked back. <laughs> the places where the novel is set, they are real places? They're real places. It's called Thessaloniki, which is where I come from. That is for the first novel. The second novel takes place both in Thessaloniki and in Thassos, which is a Greek island in northern Aegean. Do you know it? I do know Thassos, yes. I had a holiday many years ago on Thassos. My future novel will be in Thassos. I'll, I, I'll send I, it to you. My friend lived in Kavala, so I had a friend who married a Greek In Kavala? Yes. Oh, well, we are relatives, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the second novel takes place in Thassos. They have comic scenes, sad scenes, and some tragedy. There's always some tragedy in, in people's lives. Rich environment, rich historical context as well. So it is a gift for a novelist who knows that area well. This one is in a remote mountain village where there is no electricity, not even 
a proper road to go to it. Fear of light plays with the fact that there was no light, but fear of enlightenment. Did you write this during lockdown? No. I started it. The very, very first attempt was several years ago. I did research. I visited the village. I bought all of the Greek newspapers that covered the story. But it was a difficult, emotionally difficult undertaking because in writing this woman's story, I would have, to an extent, to be with her, locked in a room or in a cellar. And that is not easy. So I kept postponing it until I wrote other novels and then until I thought, now I must. Is this based on a true story? Yes. It was a story that actually was very well known in Greece because it was a shocking story. Complete accidentally, I read it first in The Guardian. There was a short piece about finding this woman in a cellar after many years, accidentally discovering her. Then I went down to Greece and I I got all of the newspapers that covered the story. I read them and then I didn't have the stamina, I didn't have the, the moral courage, the strength to start writing immediately. So I put it aside, I wrote another one or two novels and then finally I went to it. I looked at the newspapers, details, etc., and then I put them aside because I wanted it to be a novel, not a, a historical document, etc. And by the way, when I was reading about it in the paper, there were other cases that came to light, one of them in Athens, another one in Volos, which is a town near northern Greece. The one in Athens, the brother locked his sister and his mother away because the sister had a boyfriend, a fiancé, whom he didn't approve of. The brother had them locked in the washroom. I don't know for how long until they were discovered. Another story was in Volos, a mother locked her two children, two or three children, to protect them. So a kind of a, a wrong understanding of protection comes into it. Perhaps that's how it starts. And then it becomes a daily thing. And Fear of Light by Julietta Harvey is published by Starhaven. We've been talking today on Bookmark to Hope Adams, a.k.a. Adele Garras, about her novel Dangerous Women, published by Penguin. Well, what is next? You're not going to do a sequel, you say? I'm not going to do a sequel. I'm in the middle of writing a novel which is based, I say based on the Scottish artist Phoebe Anna Traquair. The reason it's based on and not as faithful to the real thing is because for the reasons of my plot, I needed Phoebe Anna Traquair to be childless, and she was not childless. So again, I didn't want to tread over any toes. So um, I say right at the beginning, I'm using her art rather than her, obviously basing a lot of it on her, but... She's not the real female. I don't even call her that. And is I this don't... Hope or Adele writing? Oh, this is Hope. It's this ho- is ho- hope's continuing. Hope's, sec- hope's second novel. Yeah, yeah. 
I haven't got a title for it, but it's set in Scotland in 1899. So, you know, you've got a bit of Gothic there. And I'm afraid there's no murder, although there are very nasty things going on. No murder? No murder. Because no murder. we ought to say, uh, you mentioned Sophie earlier, Sophie Hannah. Sophie is, Hannah, my is, daughter. Is daughter. So murder is in your writing genes, isn't well, it? Well, absolutely, but... Um, I didn't need one in this case, I didn't. I don't think. So I haven't got a locked room and I didn't want the kind of main story to be interrupted by my heroine having to go off and solve murders. It, it seemed rather odd. But I'm hoping it'll be all right. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping it will, uh, will still be entertaining. And as I say, there's enough going on with... with sort of nasty people so sounds great and uh, a question we ask all our featured guests on bookmark what are you reading at the moment i am reading oh i left it outside (laughs) there's a lovely writer called michael arditi or arditi i don't know how he says it and he has written about 12 or 13 novels he's quite elderly i don't think he'd mind me saying And he's a most wonderful writer and also a very strange writer because a lot of his books are huge, chunky, deep, rather chewy novels about kind of biblical subjects and things like that. He wrote one about about, um, Lot's wife and Sodom and Gomorrah and that kind of thing. This one is one of his other set of characteristic novels, which is about now and about human problems and it's it's fabulous so far it's fabulous it's called the choice and it's set in a church so we've got you know the female vicar and all the parishioners and things going on very very good very entertaining it's not coming out till june but it's called the choice and he's a he's a writer i like a lot called michael arditi I love a chewy novel. That's a great yeah. word to describe. You know uh, what I mean by I a chewy absolutely novel. Absolutely do. Yeah. Absolutely. Something you can literally get yeah. your teeth into, yes. <laughs> well, we'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music, but a heads up that our next show, our featured guest, is Alison Stockham talking about her debut novel, The Cuckoo Sister. We'll hear from Midge Gillies on her oh. history. You know Midge? I know Midge. Midge. Yeah. On her history of Piccadilly Circus. And Silvana Tomaselli will be chatting about her biography of Mary Wollstonecraft. So something for everyone there. But we'll sign out now, Adele, with your last choice of music, which is Adelaide's Lament from Guys and Dolls. Oh, yes. I love this. Guys and Dolls is maybe my favourite musical. As I said before, I I should have been on the stage singing this, really. I've always imagined myself at this spot. I'm now much too old. I was always probably much too fat, but I really fancy this part. Well, you can go for it now. Yeah. It says here... The average unmarried female, basically insecure, due to some long frustration, may react with psychosomatic symptoms, difficult to endure, affecting the upper respiratory tract. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.